What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Well, hi, Deconstructionist listeners. This is Science Mike. And before you get started with your beloved podcast, I've got a quick bit of exciting news to share with you. I'm going on tour this fall to support my new book, Finding God in the Waves, with a series of special events, including Ask Science Mike live appearances. The dates announced so far are going to be in Tallahassee, Denver, Nashville, Columbus, Atlanta, Chicago, and Grand Haven, as well as Portland. Now, if you're going to come to any of those, I'd love to see you, but pay special attention to the Columbus, Ohio event, because I heard that the Deconstructionist crew themselves are going to be there. So I'd love to hang out with you and the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts at the same time. You can learn more by going to findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. Thanks, and I hope to see you soon. The only way you arrive at certitude is to die. I think uh, that very many people uh, who want certitude out of the Bible uh, have indeed settled for a kind of a deathliness about the truth of the Bible. That's what I think. Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. Even the smallest donations go to help John and I maintain healthy relationships with our wives and keeps their blood pressure at a healthy level. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Dude, every once in a while, man, we get somebody like like this guy. This guy's a legend. Yeah, legend. Grateful. And, and if you're I still feel. alive, <laughs> if you're still alive, and people start calling you legend, which yeah. what we, which is what, that just means. Most people don't get talk, called a legend until they die, but <laughs> we got a legend on today. Yeah. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock, and I'm John Williamson, and today. Oh, man. Old Brugie. Old Brugie Brugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, this was a treat for me. Huge, huge. I mean, they're all treats. Yeah. Just just the ability to do what we do is is just a gift. But like every once in a while, you get a guy like this who 
Jeez. who is uh, I will be forever grateful because the guy is in retirement now. Yeah. And he took time out of out of his, you know, his schedule, um, just enjoying retirement to talk with a couple nobodies from the Midwest. Seriously, and he was so cool. Unbelievable. So who is Walter? Who is Walter Brueggemann? Oh my goodness. All right. So this guy is considered one of the like foremost experts in uh, scripture. And he, because one PhD is not enough. No. He has two PhDs. And multiple other degrees. Yeah. He's got his degree in theology. uh, And he also has a a PhD in education as well. Uh, Taught for a long time at Eden Theological Seminary. Uh, and then taught at Columbia Theological Seminary until he retired. Um, but he has written over 100 books. How many was that? 100. 100 books? That is ludicrous. I haven't written 100 words. No. <laughs> <laughs> Much less books. <laughs> books. Uh, but uh, yeah, over 100 books, numerous scholarly articles. Um, he, he's still speaking. Um, in fact, he was in our neck of the woods not too long ago, but... Um, like I said, just one of the foremost experts um, on, on scripture, scriptural interpretation, and uh, he took us to school. Oh my gosh, did he ever! And like, I think one of the things that I'd be wondering if I was tuning into a podcast, you know, that their name is the Deconstructionist, and you know, I just keep running into these, you know, theological titans. It's like, well, how is that deconstruction? It's like, well, it, you haven't heard this guy talk yet because sometimes I wonder in reading his work and I got acquainted with his work when I was going through uh, my seminary program and just latched onto this guy because it was just different. It was so different. He had a much more nuanced approach, which a lot of times if I was reading it to somebody who didn't tell them who the author was, they'd be like, oh man, that's heresy. You can't say that. And it's like, oh, no, that was Walter Brueggemann. What? <laughs> I mean- he has such an unbelievably fresh, open-minded, how about this? The best word I can use is imaginative yeah. approach. He, like, this stuff is so alive when Walt Brueggemann talks about it. It's so applicable to today, not in some sort of Aesop's fables, you know, let's learn what the moral is and apply it to our life, but this, like, that... Scripture is this living, breathing, unpredictable, weird, deconstructive in a lot of ways. He wouldn't use that phrase, but like, man, so a lot of what he said sounded like Caputo to me. Oh, for sure. Good grief. Yeah, what, what, what was that quote that we both really liked that, that he, that he uh, dropped on us in regards to Scripture? Oh, man. The, <laughs> I don't know. The one, so many. The one about being inherited. Oh, it, like the scripture's not inerrant, but it's inherent. Inherent, that's right. Inherent, like it's, there's something, when we say something's inerrant, it means it's, you know, closed off and cold and mm. done and, you know, it's a script and you just learn it. But if something is inherent, that means there's something in it. Yes. That's alive. And that's a lot more dangerous mm-hmm. because if, if scripture's inherent, then it's, or inerrant without error, um, then it's safe. It's manageable, it's predictable, but if it's inherent, it's wild and it's alive. Yeah. And you don't quite know what it's going to do and you got to let it do its thing in all its weirdness. Yeah. And that's that's what I kind of get from Brueggemann that's uh I think just really really special and so I think we just let him freaking talk for himself. Yeah, for sure. Good lord. So man, you guys are going to enjoy this. <laughs> I cannot believe we got this guy. Yeah. So fortunate. Without further ado, Walt freaking Freakin Brueggemann. Brueggemann. 
All right, let's rock and roll. Well, Dr. Walt Brueggemann, we are just delighted and honored to have you on the Deconstructionist podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm glad to have a chance to talk with you. Thanks. Oh, thank you very much, sir. Well, um, you have entered into a space here with us today that is um, coming around a lot of people that are going through either a season of doubt, or maybe it's become longer than a season, uh, a phrase that we call deconstruction, uh, like a crisis of faith. And I'm curious, um, Dr. Brueggemann, have you ever been through something like that personally? Well, I I wouldn't um, say that I had a uh, crisis of faith uh, in which I uh, uh, fell out of faith, but I have had some uh, uh, leaps and chasms uh, that required me to uh, grow and to uh, rethink, and uh, and that still goes on. Uh, and I think mm. it is uh, partly it's a matter of uh, of maturation and growth, mm. and uh, partly it is uh, uh, the demands that our uh, society places upon us and the the pressures. Uh, uh, to tilt our lives otherwise, uh, we have to keep uh, uh, finding faithful ways to respond to that, and uh, some of the faithful ways cannot be the old ways. Uh, they have to be new ways that uh, we maybe thought we'd never go there before. Well, I know about that. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I'm sure you've seen a lot of people uh, enter through this time. In fact, we have leaned heavily on... Um, a lot of your work, one in particular that we've drawn from quite a bit, is uh, the essay that you contributed to the book Struggling with Scripture. Uh huh. Yep. Just to launch kind of into that a little bit and draw out some of the material from that uh, that work you've done, which touches on a lot of your other work. Uh, one of the main problems that people have when they sincerely begin to investigate, struggle with, enter into uh, a real mature uh, interaction with Scripture is that they start to find that it's full of what they will call, you know, contradictions. People uh, from, you know, that investigated from maybe uh, an agnostic, a spiritually curious standpoint, or somebody who's just maturing in their faith and they maybe grew up more fundamentalist, uh, real staunch. When they seriously start investigating it, they start to see these things that um, church or whoever has labeled contradictions. Now, you seem to have other language for that, for this apparent problem. And I'd love to hear you invite us into another way of looking at these apparent, what we'll call, contradictions in Scripture. Well, I think uh, at, at, a, at a certain level there are contradictions, but what I would say is that the Bible itself uh, is a matrix uh, of interpretation. And uh, in that matrix of interpretation, there are many interpretive voices uh, that are shaped by uh, very different theological traditions and theological trajectories, uh, and uh, they don't all, all start at the same place, and they don't all end at the same place. And I think that uh, our Bible reading and our Bible study uh, is an opportunity to uh, participate in that uh, uh, interpretive conversation, and obviously none of us 
come to that conversation innocent either. Uh, we all carry our freight, and we bring our freight to it, uh, and so um, we we are a participant, but we may not be always uh, the dominant voice, and we may be corrected by other voices uh, in the interpretation, and I think that's exactly went on what went on in the formation of the biblical text itself. It's a it's a very uh, it's a very dynamic process, and I think that uh, most very many people were schooled uh, in a very um, static, settled understanding of Scripture, which I believe is a big misconstrual of uh, of its origin or how we are to understand it. Hmm. So you know, just to take an example that. Um... I've come across, I've even heard you talk about before, um, I think it's in um, the book of Kings and then in the book of Chronicles when David takes a census. In one instance, it's God coming to David to take this census. And in the other instance, it's Satan tempting David to take this census. And people would look at that and they'd say, hey, look, there, it's a contradiction. Okay. you know." But, but I've heard you talk about this before and I found what you said very helpful. I wonder if you could go into that a little bit more. Well, it is a it is a, a glaring and unmistakable case where they did this, and uh, uh, as you know, what interpreters uh, tend to say is that the Chronicles text is later, uh, and it was under uh, the influence of Persian culture when uh, uh, a more vivid understanding of Satan began to emerge, so that the the people who made that text had available to them. Uh, certain uh, theological mantras and uh, interpretive strategies that maybe were not available when uh, the Book of Kings was put together, uh, so that uh, you can see that in very many different contexts over the centuries, uh, the people who put the biblical text together had certain uh, interpretive strategies and uh, theological concepts and uh, theological phrasings that maybe weren't available at another time, and so uh, they did what we do. They they used what they had available to try to make sense out of what they were doing. And uh, I, I think uh, uh, what's important in doing that is not to easily decide that one reading is right and one reading is wrong, but right. to, try to, to try to think through uh, why that narrative about David's punishment why it received uh, more than one interpretation. And, and I suppose the reason it received more than one interpretation is that it's a very difficult narrative report, and uh, it, it creates a lot of problems, and uh, interpretation tends to be a response to, uh, to things that are not easily explained or decoded. Uh, and uh, I, I think we, we have to get over the idea that... Uh, we can just open the text, and and its meaning is perfectly clear. I think I think it's much more artistic than that, and uh, it's like trying to understand good music or good painting. Uh, you know, you don't just get it at first glance and uh, and write a summary of it. You have to uh, you just have to live with it. I think, and I think yeah. that's what we do with the biblical text at our best. I think we live with it. Oh man! Yeah, and and actually, it it that makes me think of one of my favorite quotes from uh, "Struggling with Scripture," where you say uh, you refer to the Bible as broad and deep and demanding, utter utterly beyond us in its richness, and yet 
it seems like the modern Western view, at least, is that it's really quite simple. It's uh, you take it at, at face value. And what I found interesting, and, and I was hoping that you could kind of talk about this a little bit, is um, the Western view, at least predominantly in the 20th century, seems to you toss around this, this term inerrancy. Uh, but you use the word inherently. And so I was wondering if you could go into that just a little bit and, well, and explain I, I what you mean. Be, uh, I meant to be a little puckish uh, in doing <laughs> that. I, I think that uh, that inerrancy, that is, that the, the Bible doesn't contain any errors, I think it's an absurdity, uh, and I, I think it's a 19th century mistake. No, nobody ever used that kind of language uh, till the 19th century when we were busy trying to compete with science, and we wanted to... Uh, we want to sound scientific, but of course it's bad science uh, to think that it's inerrant too. So I, I just wanted to make a play on inerrancy, and since that article uses a whole bunch of words that start with I, I thought that, that inherent means that, uh, that uh, the believing community uh, comes out at the Bible with a ready expectation that in some way it is God's live word to us. And so that's why I use the word inherent. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, press that very far, uh, but I want to play with it. Uh, <laughs> I, I gave that, that paper to a community that, of people, uh, none of whom thought that the Bible was inherent, inerrant. So I had some uh, room for maneuverability about that. Absolutely. Love it. Man. Yeah. So... One of the things that I love that you say, which again, and you touched on it briefly, so I'm glad we get to dive into this a little bit. You had mentioned this artistic quality or this this artistic approach that we even have. And I wonder if in that essay and in some of your other work, in fact, all over your work, you're always saying that responsible interpretation requires imagination. Now, could you explain what you mean by that? Because I know firsthand that most or a lot of Christians would not think that interpretation requires imagination because interpretation is supposed to be a science and imagination is very subjective. Well, in fact, I I would say for starters, uh, we inevitably... Uh, use imagination when we read the Bible. Uh, We do that all the time when we take an ancient text and we try to use it to argue about a contemporary problem that the text itself is not concerned with. So to make that leap uh, is an act of imagination. Uh, But what I mean by imagination is the, the, uh, the ability to see uh, that the biblical text entertains a world other than the one that is in front of us. Mm. One that in front of us is, uh, we understand it, we can explain it, we can manage it, we can cope with it, uh, but, but the world uh, that, to which the Bible testifies uh, is very strange by all the reasoning categories that we use for our contemporary life. And so it requires uh, us uh, both to use imagination and to recognize that the Bible writers themselves are using uh, great imagination. And if we if we try to uh, if we try to be explanatory in a kind of a one dimensional way, I think that we lose uh, the thickness uh, of the text uh, and the, and the the capacity to play with it. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, go, I don't know a lot about classical music, but I go to the symphony, uh, 
And then I, I read the review the next day, and the reviewer says, uh, well, this was a, a very mundane performance, and uh, the notes were not played with the right pace, and it wasn't thick enough, which, which, which means that the conductor uh, was doing an interpretation of the musical score uh, according to the conductor's imagination. And I think that's what we do uh, every every time we read the Bible, we render it in a certain kind of way, given our uh, inclination, given our context, given our uh, emotional energy on that day. All of that uh, is is an act of imagination that causes the church, the text, to take on a kind of a vitality uh, that it wouldn't if we simply treat it as a as a package of certitude. And I think that's what we have to resist. So to, to go to go off of what you just said, I love we love the fact that you brought up uh, this this idea of certainty or certitude uh, found within the church. Um, on our podcast, one of the things that we talk about is the fact that this idea of certainty has almost become an idol uh, within the church. And one of the things that you that I know you've said previously, I wonder if you could kind of unpack this for our listeners a little bit is the church is specialized in certitude, uh, but the interpretive enterprise does not yield certitude, it yields possibility. Well, I think that's right, and I think that that certitude has become an idol for us uh, because we live in such an anxious society that feels Mm. like uh, everything is falling apart and we'd like to go someplace where it's not falling apart. But but I I think it is a category mistake uh, faith uh, does not yield certitude, which is a which is an intellect, which is a cognitive category. What faith yields is fidelity, which is a relational category. And the truth is that no cognitive category will satisfy our hunger for viable relationships. So, so the 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 uh, the antidote to certitude uh, is. Uh, uh, fidelity in relationships between us and the writers of the text and between all of us in an interpretive community that we are trustworthy does not mean that we are right. It means that we are trustworthy. Uh, And uh, we can uh, uh, trust people who uh, continue to be thinking and interpreting and opening up new possibilities uh, which which uh, never arrive at certitude. I, I think that certitude uh, certitude is uh, uh, inimical to the human condition, and I think uh, the only way you arrive at certitude is to die. And and I I think uh, that very many people uh, who uh, uh, who want certitude out of the Bible uh, have indeed settled for a kind of a uh, deathliness about the truth of the Bible. That's what I think. Man. Wow. Uh, Dr. Brueggemann, um, one of the things that we've picked up uh, recently, uh, a couple young guys were total rookies at this, but uh, uh, an idea that we found fascinating, and we're not, just not, not sure what to do with it, and we'd love to just hear your own commentary on it, is um, read an essay by N.T. Wright that he wrote back in the 90s um, talking about the authority of Scripture and he talked about in that essay that um, essentially what happened during the Reformation is 
the church at hand removed the papacy as the, uh, as the authority of the church, the cohesive uh, authority figure of the church, and, and they put in its place a paper pope of the Bible, making the Bible the ultimate authority of the church. And then Phyllis Tickle, uh, one of the emergent kind of authors um, who passed away recently, picked up that thread from N.C. Wright and talked about it in terms of church history, that yes, we have taken uh, the paper pope and replaced him with the, the uh, taken the pope and replaced him with a paper pope, which is scripture. Could you just talk about that idea a little bit in your familiarity with scripture and what well, it I, is? I think... Uh... I think that's uh, not a very helpful oversimplification. I don't think that we arrived at what uh, Wright and Tickle call a paper pope until the 19th century. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, the uh, European and American church got very nervous about science, and uh, it wanted to out-science science uh, with the uh, with the the Bible, but that was not until the 19th century. Luther and Calvin, you know, the the, the lead reformers, uh, they did not believe in a in a uh, paper pope. They believed uh, that the church is the responsible interpreter, but that the church is no longer to be identified with the pope. Uh, uh, so that and and obviously. Luther and Calvin were themselves very authoritative teachers, so they sort of offered themselves uh, as the true authorities. Uh, but they they had a very high view of the church. Uh, they just thought that that uh, Rome had gone rotten and and did not represent the faithful work of the church. Uh, but but on, I think until the the, the crisis of science in the 19th century, uh, I, don't, I don't think that uh, the Reformation traditions uh, reduced it uh, to a paper pope. There was uh, some uh, scholasticism in uh, Lutheranism and Calvinism in the 18th century, but even that is considerably removed uh, from the reformers of the 16th century. So I think it's a, uh, I think it's a quite modern problem uh, in a way that uh, the reformers were not modern, uh, and I, I do think uh, that that since the 19th century, that uh, fundamentalism on, on the one hand, and then uh, what we've now come to call progressivism on the other hand, I think mm. uh, those were moves toward a paper pope, but th- that didn't happen till near the end of the 19th century. So it's a right. fairly uh, it's a fairly recent problem, in my view. Hmm. So what? So what then? Do you think uh, the role of scripture is, and and has the role of scripture changed? Well, I I I don't know whether it's 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 uh, it, it takes so many different forms. I don't want to say it's changed. I would think uh, that it provides the uh, elemental materials uh, out of which. Uh, we are to do uh, faithful imagination in our own contemporary context. And uh, if, if you think of the Bible as uh, an alternative to the great uh, meta-narratives of uh, Darwin and Marx and Freud and Adam Smith, if you take Adam Smith as the uh, 
father of uh, modern capitalism. Yeah. Uh, you know, then capitalism in the United States is a is a uh, big uh, rival for the script of the Bible. And uh, what what the church is always trying to do is to uh, understand contemporary life according to the script of the Bible rather than the script of Adam Smith or Darwin or Freud or Marx or any of the others that you might name. Uh, what has happened, with, particularly with capitalism, is that the Bible has been largely co-opted uh, into capitalism so that to very many people, uh, uh, the Bible sounds like capitalism. Or if you're hot on Darwin, the Bible sounds like a script for evolution. Or if you're into uh, uh, depth psychology, the Bible sounds like a way of getting to Freud, and so on and so on, rather than saying uh, this is a script uh, that has its own voice, uh, and we have to listen to it uh, and, and, uh, and maintain some critical distance from these other scripts uh, that offer an alternative. That is, I have seen evidence of that so much just throughout my life that we, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is the concept of bias, trying to introduce some of our listeners to this really powerful concept that's at work in all of us. And it really seems like it ties into a lot of what we're saying that, you know, we have these unconscious bias specifically in germane to our discussion. We all have a confirmation bias where we see what we want to see when we approach the text. That's exactly right. Yep, we do that. And so then what do we do about that? Well, uh, I, th- I think we need, to, uh, we need to have all the good critical tools uh, that we can mobilize. Uh, the other thing we have to have is that we have to belong, as, as best we are able, we have to belong to a very uh, heterogeneous interpretive community that represents voices uh, that uh, do not share our biases. Uh, and uh, in the United States, uh, that I think that mainly means uh, to be attentive to how people in the third world read the Bible. Uh, they read it very differently from the way we read it, and we need to, uh, we need to pay attention to how they read it. That, that, that functions as a kind of, a, of a, uh, an alert or a wake-up call about our biases, that we do not even recognize as biases. Wow. What, what, what would you say if you could sum up how the third world reads uh, the Bible right now? Well, the, the, uh, the mantra of uh, liberation theology, as you know, is God's preferential option for the poor. That is, that the God of the Bible in both Testaments has a, a, a huge partiality toward poor people. Mm. And that, of course, contradicts uh, the way we read the Bible uh, when we are half committed to capitalism, because uh, capitalism is a huge bias uh, toward people who have succeeded economically rather than who have been left behind economically. Mm. And uh, once you get a a fix on that uh, interpretive angle... uh, you begin to see the text differently uh, in very many ways. Man, my, my friend David Kappener says that 
uh, oftentimes we live in this vicious cycle that where shame produces uh, retreat into isolation or individualism, and that individualism drives us toward capitalistic consumerism to medicate the individualism um, and the shame that we feel, which then drives us into more shame, and and the cycle just continues. And it yeah. seems like a lot of what you're saying is, you know, if you're in this faithful community, um, it can start to interrupt that circuit. That's exactly right. Or to use your word, deconstruct. Man, so one of the things that you said that I think ties into this that I love is you said that, you know, often we avoid dialogue or interaction with people whose interpretation may differ, differ from our own, and uh, this tension, you've actually found it to be a great value because you've said it might lead you out of your own view. That's correct. It, it, it functions as a, as a, uh, a possibility to, uh, to grow and to read better. That's right. Man, yeah, that is just... Uh, how else can we start to participate in that? You know, we're, we're coming to a close here. Um, what advice would you give to people that are in... Um, that, one of the terms that we use here is a lot of us feel spiritually claustrophobic, meaning we, we know there's a bigness outside of our smallness, but we're nervous to go outside of it because it's leaving the tribe, leaving the stream, leaving that one approach you've always taken is a scary thing. What advice would you have for people? Well, I, I think uh, it's, it's not easy to do, but I think it means that church communities uh, need to be in uh, sustained conversation with uh, people who experience uh, political economic life differently. And uh, I'm in Cincinnati, and you're in Columbus, and uh, there are those groups of people, there are those congregations uh, right in our own towns uh, with whom we need to make better contact. Wow, absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, I think uh, uh, that's true in um, across uh, Christian communities. And then when we get really bold, we can begin to have the same kind of conversations with Muslim communities or whoever. But that probably is not the place to start. Hmm. Sure. Dr. Brueggemann, we want to be sensitive to your time. We could ask you a million more questions. Your work is so extensive. We want to make sure people know that they can go to walterbrueggemann.com, um, read essays, see videos, books, blogs, all of that. And we're hoping, um, if we weren't you know, too tedious and, and, and too much of a rookie team here, that maybe in the, in the future, we could talk about things like uh, maybe prophetic imagination, prophecy, and some of the problems that people have in the Old Testament. Would you be willing to... Maybe sure. do this again at, at a future date. Do that down the road. Yes. Oh, oh thank, thank you, you so Dr. Much. Brueggemann. Um, God bless you. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's good to talk to you, and uh, I hope your work continues to go well. Thank, thank you, you so much, much, Dr. Brueggemann. Grace right. and peace to you, Bye. friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Remember the day that I first met you I thought these hands of mine could catch you but I was the one I was the one falling down when I was young oh my goodness dude we just talked to Walt freaking Brigerman <laughs> yeah and by the way this was months ago because um 
when we interviewed him, I definitely was still laid up for my foot surgery. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So we've literally Just can't been believe it. itchy to release this one for so long. Oh, we've got some other ones we're itching. Yeah, you guys don't me. even know what we're sitting on, yeah. man. You know, it's it's so funny that scripture is such a uh, divisive thing. Yeah, it's such a problem for so many people. I was just talking to somebody this week, and this girl was going through a deconstruction. She's talking to me about how much she loves our show because it's just given her permission. But then when we kind of started talking about her life and where she was at again, the problems that she had, even even cracking it open in any new way. And then I just you know just finished reading. Uh, Mike McCarg, Science Mike's new book. Yeah. And after he went through his sort of deconstruction, turned to atheism, now he's, you know, came back around into the faith. Approaching scripture was not easy, man, because it's like, I think a lot of people listening to the show, and like, I don't know about you, I didn't really have this experience, but like, they, they were traumatized by it yeah. in a lot of ways. Like, it, there's like a joke in atheism, like, if you want to make somebody an, an atheist, just tell them to actually read the Bible. <laughs> yeah. It's a problematic text. And what I love about Brueggemann is he comes at it with such fresh, new, wonderful, vital, living, breathing, wild, unpredictable, crazy sometimes yeah. insights that it makes you want to dig back in and go, wait, what? Yeah. That's amazing. And the, I think the interesting thing, at least the kind of revisiting this episode after having recorded it, you know, a couple months ago is, yeah. is based off the, the stuff that I'm reading now, I'm kind of diving into some like historical and looking back at the, you know, the, the early Christians and uh, the, the ancient Jewish community and mm. kind of how they interpreted scripture through uh, the practice of Midrash and, mm. and, you know, and that sort of thing. It, it kind of seems like he, you know, a guy like Brueggemann is kind of like this new, looking at it in this new way, but really, that's the way that the uh, Jewish community always interpreted scripture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we take this sort of post-enlightenment literalist interpretation of scripture as being like, well, this is how it's always been. No. No. Dude. Not, not at all. You do a little digging, and uh, you find out that actually for thousands of years, there was a completely different way of, of viewing scripture. And these communities would would uh, would read these sacred texts and and constantly try to find new revelation within within those texts. So you know, I, it's so funny because, and I'm not. This is, I can't say this without sounding a little bit arrogant, and I don't mean it to be arrogant at all. But like, there's been several people that have asked me, you know, now that I've gone through this deconstruction, like, how do I view scripture? And I'm like, well, I can't answer that question because there's not like one thing I can say. Right. Well, like, well, but do you believe it's the word of God? I'm like, well, yeah, but like what I mean by that and what you think I mean by that are probably two different things. Well, no, it should just, you know, be the same. You know, he, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm like, no, that's that's not where I'm at anymore. And in fact, that's pretty much, if you look at the thrust of history, where nobody's been at except, you know, just some fundamentalist sects in the Westernized world for the last 150 or less yeah, maybe. Even years. And it's just, uh, this is a vital, open, you know, breathing thing. If anybody wants a good place to start on Brueggemann's work, there's a compendium of essays that he sort of headlines, you know, sorry, uh, Will Pla Placker and, and Brian Blount. But like, there's these three guys that write this collection of essays and the book is titled Struggling with Scripture, which is such an apt title. And John and I have it laying here on the table and he slid it over to me a minute ago and I, I opened it back up to a couple of the things that I highlighted. And here's just a taste 
It says anyone who imagines that reading scripture is settled, that the reading of it is settled and eternally simple, they're not paying attention to the process in which we are all engaged, liberals and conservatives. And it's like these people that come up to me that say, well, sola scriptura. I'm like, yeah, an idea that's not even in scripture. Right. Like, where did you get that? You know, it's, I just, I love Brueggemann, man. Yeah. There's so much permission in what he says, but like, he's not soft on the Bible. He's a high view of scripture. Yeah. Oh, I could go all day. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, that's, that's a great book. And it's, it's not super long either. You can, you can get through it pretty quickly, even though it's very dense in content. Oh, so dense. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, this is something that we've revisited a couple times. Um, this was actually going to be part of another uh, series on scripture, but um, we ran out of time this year. Oh, man. So well, we, we didn't think we were going to get him. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I said yes. And we're like, oh, well, our scripture series is already done, but let's just do a one-off with yeah. Walt freaking Brueggemann. And if you like the music today, um, as always, we, we try to give a, a little uh, plug to the, the band that, you know... Uh, Dude, this is good. Broke up the. Who, uh, who is this? This is a, a band called Seabird, uh, based out of Kentucky. I thought they were out of Nashville. I was wrong. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> you would have just started a fire. I know. Um, they're incredible guys, like super, super nice, um, and just insane musicians. I heard them opening for another band uh, a couple years ago, and I remember like half paying attention. Uh, which is a horrible thing to say, but was instantly like, whoa. That's a lot of times what you do for the opening act, and they have to kind of win your attention. And they right? did. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So uh, go out and check out their, especially their last album. Um, we'll have all their information and links in the show notes, but um, incredible band. I uh, hope you guys are enjoying this, and as always, um, if you guys have any other artists or bands that you guys know of that uh, would love a little free, free promotion, mm. uh, send them our way. Yep, and uh, please come out and catch us at the Ask Science Mike Live that you probably heard on the beginning of this show. We will be there. We'll have drinks afterwards with Science Mike himself, and that'll be a really good time to meet some of you guys and, and hang out and yeah. have a drink and hear your stories. So, and that, uh, Oh, and also, don't forget, Pints and Parables with Pete Rollins in uh, Detroit, Michigan. That's right. That's October like 20th or 22nd. 21st check, it's, it's, or 22nd, It, it yeah. might be changing. Check, check his yeah. Twitter or check his website for updated dates you got anything else no man that was so fun always i love doing this <laughs> we love you guys we'll catch you soon we are your hosts i'm adam narlock and i'm john williamson keep deconstructing we were in love what does that
about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.